Hi, and welcome to The Missing Middle. I'm Kara Stern. And I'm Mike Moffat. And last week, the federal government announced it would be creating a design catalog for new builds. They would look into ways that they could fast track development. And that's something that Mike's been talking about for a while. So I wanted to find out. Uh, First of all, how do those design catalogs actually work? So we can actually look to to history for this. Uh, This was something that existed from about 1947 to 1977 uh, or so that the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation would issue these about once a year. And it would literally be like a catalog uh, that a builder or developer or just average Canadian person go. You could get the catalog. You could look at a lot of pretty pictures of home designs and if you saw something that you'd want to build, you could uh, pay a little bit of money, uh, go to the federal government and actually get the blueprints uh, for it. So uh, back then, the designs tended to be, not exclusively, but tended to be small, uh, single detached family homes. Uh, I think what they're likely to do now is have a wider variety of housing forms. But it's the same basic idea where you have these uh, designs that uh, that architects uh, have put together and any Canadian could access for a nominal fee. And so this would be for individuals who are looking to build. It's not for big developers. So any any absolutely anybody uh, could could take these things. So if a large uh, builder or developer wanted to build tens of thousands of these across Canada, they could absolutely do so. So, but it's uh, it kind of levels the playing field somewhat, where it's uh, you know anybody can access these things and and uh, get those blueprints for very minimal cost. I had heard that the architects there's a, there's groups of architects that have been speaking out against it that didn't like it when the city of Kelowna had looked into doing this. Why would this be something that architects don't like? Well, I, I don't really want to speak for the, them too much, but I can, you know, talk about the potential downsides or, or, or ways that, that governments uh, could get this wrong. Uh, one of the ways to get this wrong is that, first of all, that you need to have these blueprints, you need to have these designs in, in place. And we have to make sure that the, the federal government or municipal government is actually paying architects a, a decent fee for, for their services. So I think that's one of, one of the first issues. The, the, the second issue is that uh, you need to have a, a diversity of, of designs, that what works in one geography might not work in another. Uh, and, and to the very sort of micro level where you're considering things uh, like, like soil conditions or let's say you have a house design uh, that has built-in solar panels. Well, whether or not your your lot faces north or faces south is a really big deal when it comes to those things. So, uh, so making sure that, that you have those. And then Finally, you know, there is a risk that if you don't have a, a diversity of designs that you, you know, can create a, a bit of a mo- monoculture of, of a bunch of homes that look the same. And that's, you know, I'm often do not. That anyways, no. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I've been in many neighborhoods uh, where, you know, you have a, a developer who built, you know, 300 homes and it's basically based on four different designs that the customer can choose from. So, I mean, that that's already an issue. And I think there's. I think there are legitimate uh, concerns about about that. Actually, I would add a fourth one as well, that because these designs historically have been for single detached homes, I actually think there's really a, a legitimate concern that this could lead to additional sprawl, right? That if, if we're just uh, helping people build more single detached homes, then we're, we're building out rather than, rather than up. So, 
I do think architects have some very legitimate concerns. I think those can be addressed in the design of the program, but the federal government does need to address them. Yeah, I saw that they had said that they were looking at starting it with multiplexes, student residences, and senior residences. So, like, how how much of a variety of forms would do you think that they're likely to have? Are we talking like there's a dozen, a hundred? Where do you think it'll land? Yeah, well, I, I'm hoping that that it's in the hundreds, and I think this will have to be uh, a, a process that uh, is sort of added to over over time where, you know, maybe in 2024, they have a few dozen different designs. And then every year they, they add to it to create additional diversity. But, you know, there are some areas that, that I, I think they should particularly focus on. Uh, an obvious one is fourplexes. We've seen uh, the federal government uh, work with municipalities to basically legalize fourplexes, make them be able to build them as of right. There aren't a lot of fourplex designs out there, particularly if you're a smaller builder. So I think that could increase uh, uptake. Student residences is an obvious one. is something that I talk about a lot, that we don't have enough student housing. Um, and another one would be mass timber, particularly, let's say, like a six-story uh, apartment building. Uh, you know, we need a lot more of those. Uh, but we also, you know, don't have that many builders and developers who are... Uh, used to dealing uh, with, uh, you know, mass timber as, as part of their construction. So this might be a way to lower the barrier to, to entry, you know, for, for someone who, you know, might have built three or six story apartment buildings, but using more traditional methods, this might encourage them to try something new. Yeah, when the Ontario government uh, announced that they were going to allow triplexes across the province, one major criticism I had heard was that the other parts of the plans, like the about the floor space index, about all these different parts of, of designing the home, weren't being changed in a way that actually made them feasible. Um, and I was wondering how much zoning will stop these homes from actually being built. Like, do we need these municipalities to largely change a bunch of their zoning rules in order to make the federal government's plans work? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways that this can fall down. The, the, the first is, is is zoning, and that goes beyond the, the catalog of designs. That actually goes to you know the heart of the housing accelerator and what the federal government's trying to do. That let's say a municipality says, okay, you know what, we're going to allow fourplexes as of right, but we're also going to institute a rule that that every unit needs to have a dedicated parking space. So therefore, you need to have four parking spaces on the lot. Well, that's going to largely make the fourplex uneconomical where, uh, you know, you unless it's a very large lot, you might not be able to put it on and have enough spots for parking. So there's all these other little rules that could stop, uh, you know, whether it be a fourplex, uh, you know, six story uh, a, a mass timber apartment building, all of these things from getting built. The other one is uh, the building code itself. Um and, you know, I remember our conversation uh, with Minister Collin in BC, where we talked about uh, single egress stairs, uh, which I think a few people got really, really excited about, and, you know, everybody else we, we may have lost. But that's going to be a big deal, particularly if we're trying to build more, uh, you know, six story or 12 story, well, maybe not 12, but, uh, well, it could be 12, uh, six story or 12 story apartment buildings. If we're trying to build more of those, then that might be difficult using the, the sort of more traditional uh, dual staircase type methods. So that's one of the really important things to understand, whether it be the housing accelerator or the catalog of designs. 
that it only works if you you have the underlying conditions and you change a bunch of other stuff as well. So this is really like a one small part of getting more supply in the market. It's not an affordability measure in itself, right? Well, I mean, it, it can be, but uh, but you certainly need uh, to have a lot more supporting uh, conditions. Uh, but it, it can drive affordability. Um, so one of, one of the big issues is that time is money, right? And, and we all know that. And uh, the, the federal government is talking about this catalog as being pre-approved designs. Uh, and we should be clear about what we mean by approvals there. So, you know, we've seen some commentary on Twitter saying, well, it doesn't really help with, you know, uh, so, you know, uh, site planning approval, you know, site approvals at the municipal level and things like that, which is absolutely true. But where it really does make a difference is if uh, if a, a builder is going to the, the CMHC to get finance and insurance on, on a program like MLI Select, um, you know, having the design out there can really fast track the process. So there can be cost savings. Another way there can be cost savings is if these designs are made in such a way that they're simple to build, they're not particularly labor intensive. And if you have those builders and developers building them, you know, over and over again, you get that kind of learning by doing process. You, you speed the things up. Economies of scale can, too, right? Economies of scale. Yeah, a- a- Absolutely. And another way, you know, so there are actually a lot of ways that can, I, I keep thinking of more and more, there are a lot of ways that can lower costs. One of the other ways is that you can incorporate um, new technologies. In We've already mentioned mass timber, but things like panelization. If those are incorporated into the design, then it creates a market for those products. Manufacturers start making more panels or, or whatever uh, is in the design. And again, you get that learning by doing economies of scale, and then the actual components that go into the house, you start to see their prices get lowered as well. I guess if they're trying to do multiplexes specifically with this, it's trying to reach out to those kind of the millennials like me, who's like, I'm willing to sacrifice space so I don't have to commute in from outside the city. But I wonder how big of a role it'll play. Is that a is that a big enough cohort that people are willing to live in these smaller multiplexes, these prefab multiplexes, um, instead of getting a one of those like compared to what they were building before with these those single detached homes in the post-war efforts yeah no i i think it, it can make a significant difference again if it's coupled particularly if it's coupled with, with uh building code changes and, and that kind of thing that i really do think there is a large untapped market out there for three bedroom or even four bedroom apartment buildings that just just haven't been built uh, for a variety of reasons. Again, building code is, is one of the obvious ones. I really think that this catalog could help accelerate the building of those things where you have then have a, a couple, uh, you know, it could be a young couple with a child or an older couple who, you know, wouldn't mind being in a, an apartment building, wouldn't mind having a place that didn't have stairs, but maybe want a third bedroom when, when the, for when the grandkids come over or, or things like that. So I do think there is an untapped market for larger sized apartment units that this catalog could help accelerate. And when you have tiny shoebox condos that are just out of reach for most people, why would these kinds of homes be affordable? Well, we should we should be clear that there are some things that you know this catalog can't do. You know, the, this catalog is not going to lower the square foot price of of, of land. So, 
if you're you know if you're building a three bedroom apartment building in downtown Toronto, I don't care your construction methods are. It's going to be expensive, right? Just just because you know you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe even to the seven figures, just for the land uh, part of, of your apartment. So you know we should be. We should be very clear that this doesn't change everything. Um, and, you know, affordability is a bit of a scale. But if we can figure out how to lower construction prices by 5 or 10 or 15%, that makes a, a meaningful difference. And then particularly if we can find ways to use our land more productively. So instead of building, you know, a single detached or semi-detached home, we're buying a fourplex. You're now dividing that land four ways instead of two ways, and that can you know, really make a substantial difference. A lot of the post-war homes that I see tend to be ones that people get as when they're you know starting out, and then a lot of them have been built up over time. So there's not a lot of these starter homes left. They've become you know much. Uh, much more expensive homes that are for bigger families and are like, they're kind of disappearing, which is obviously it needs to be replaced with more supply. But I keep wondering with this one, if this becomes a way that the government's encouraging lower end builds, what's stopping someone from just kind of building it and then eventually just expanding it to the point where it's no longer affordable? Yeah. And I, I think this is where the actual designs are, are important, that I think this would be a failure if this were simply an initiative to build a bunch of single detached 900 square foot homes, then people would absolutely do that. So you have to make sure that there is a, a market for these products. But we, just, we should also be clear that what the federal government here is doing is not actually building the homes themselves. Uh, and there's been some confusion about that, because back in the 1940s, the, the federal government actually did that uh, through, the, through the wartime housing effort. So, you know, if there's a design in, in the catalog that just doesn't make economic sense, that builders and developers aren't, aren't, aren't going to build it. So I don't think there's much fear of that. But I, I do think that, you know, housing ta- tastes and incomes change over time. So, you know, yeah, there are there's going to be a lot of stuff uh, built now that 30 or 40 years ago was going to be heavily renovated into something else. But I don't think that has much to do with the catalog. I think that's just, you know, the sort of nature of, of housing. Yeah, there's a whole episode to do for sure on starter homes and what's happened with them, because it's definitely there's been big changes in the way that they've gone from different generations. And I see people don't like seem to move as much. So they tend to expand their homes more. And it's it's a, it's a whole other story. Um I wanted to read something from the Globe and Mail. The past president of the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada, Alan Teramura, called this plan naive and said, Today, the situation is far more complex. Rural land adjacent to cities is largely in the hands of developers who have a pre-established model for exploiting its commercial value, which does not include one-off non-market projects. Providing them with templates they can copy and paste into place is not likely going to change that. Inner-city infill sites, on the other hand, are all unique and cannot be retrofitted with prototypical buildings. The simple duplication of more complex buildings across the country would already be standard practice if it was technically feasible, but climate, orientation, soil conditions, and the regulatory particularities of a site make outwardly identical buildings quite different beneath the surface. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of truth to that. And uh, I think, you know, there's kind of two poles to this argument here where, you know, you've got people who are enthusiastic, and I kind of consider myself part of it, you know, 
pitching this as, you know, this is the thing that solves everything. And then you've got others going, you know, well, it, this doesn't really solve, solve anything because of these 37 other issues. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle that, that this is helpful, but there are these other issues. And I, I would actually agree that I don't expect the, the big, uh, you know, subdivision developers, we won't name any of them, but you, we know who, who they are. I don't expect them to adopt anything from the, this catalog. And that's that's not what it's there for. Um, I do think it's more, you know, the sort of boutique, the, 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 the kind of one-offs. And, uh, you know, I would disagree somewhat on the on the infill side. That I, I think the point taken is a good one, that, that lots are significantly different from, from each other. But again, go back to... The discussion we just had a few minutes ago about you know all of those cookie cutter homes built in the 70s and 80s those are the kinds of neighborhoods i could see this uh working in um and you know i i do think yes you would have to take into account the soil condition and again is is the house facing north or south if it's something with a solar panel on it but i do think there are more more opportunities uh here than that might suggest and even if it's would only work on five percent of lots that's potentially transformative, right? So, so yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to, to what he says, uh, but you know, I, I think it might be overstated uh, a, a little. Just again, like the, the like advocates like me might be overstating the, uh, the the benefits somewhat, just because we we think this is such a, a great idea. I guess it's one of those things where it's like anytime we have these new announcements on housing, I always hear people say, well, is that really going to solve it? And I don't think there's any one policy that could resolve it ever. I mean, I guess some people point out really capping demand is a way to do that, but that has all these other unintended consequences. So it's like, yeah, there, these are all little things that I guess we're seeing that could potentially work together to see big changes, right? Well, I, I, absolutely. So, you know, if you change immigration policy to bring in more laborers, then people will say, well, you, yeah, but land is so expensive that we'll make homes affordable. And if the federal government does something to on land, people will say, well, yeah, but who's going to build these things? We don't have the labor, right? So it's constantly uh, this series of bottlenecks. And it was one of the things that, that we looked at uh, when we uh, did the National uh, Housing Accord and are working together a report of trying to sort of figure out all the bottlenecks preventing us from hitting, you know, whether it be the provincial housing target or the CMHC number uh, we, we got into. And, and I, I think we identified about three dozen different barriers, which we then put into, you know, six distinct buckets. There is no policy possible that simultaneously solves three dozen problems that simply doesn't exist so, you know, if we judge our housing's policy on, uh, you know, does it does it cover every single issue? No housing policy is, is going to be a success. There's always going to be something that that doesn't touch, which which shows that we need a suite of policies in order to address a housing crisis that, you know, just just these one offs by themselves are never going to address all all of the things that have gotten us into this mess. Thanks so much for watching The Missing Middle. Uh, this was produced, as always, by the amazing Meredith Martin. And please uh, like or subscribe or leave a comment. It would really help us out a lot. We'll see you next time.